From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're taking a look at growing concerns about the independence of central banks around the world. Here in the U.S., that independence has been threatened by President Trump's clear disapproval of the Fed. Let's put it this way. He's equated the Fed to a golfer who can't putt and called its logic faulty. Now, White House pressure on the Fed to lower rates isn't anything new. We saw this more than once back in the 70s and 80s. But this time around, President Trump's criticism has been unusually vocal, unrelenting, and basically a mainstay on his Twitter feed. We're going to be breaking records. If we had a Fed that would lower interest rates, we'd be like a rocket ship. But we're paying a lot of interest and it's unnecessary, but we don't have a Fed that knows what they're doing. Despite the very public criticism, Fed Chairman Jay Powell insists it's not influencing the Fed's decisions. Here he is at the press conference last month after the Fed cut interest rates for the first time in over a decade. We never take into account political considerations. There's no place in our discussions for that. We also don't conduct monetary policy in order to prove our independence. But it's not just the U.S. where there might be cause for worry. The effectiveness and credibility of monetary policy have been called into question across advanced economies, thanks to slow growth, a rise in populism, and the potential need for more coordination between monetary and fiscal policy in a world of already low interest rates. These concerns were somewhat reinforced by the appointment of Christine Lagarde, a politician rather than a central banker, as the next president of the European Central Bank. And the challenges of resisting political influence are even more acute in emerging markets, where central banks are generally newer and weaker institutions. Case in point, in Turkey, President Erdogan recently replaced the central bank's governor over a policy disagreement. With all of that lingering, how concerned we should be about threats to central bank independence and the implications those threats pose for policy, the economy, and markets is top of mind. I want to start with some background on why central bank independence matters. To answer this question, I reached out to Donald Cohn. He was vice chairman of the Fed during the height of the financial crisis. Why is the independence of the Federal Reserve so important? I think the importance of Fed independence is to have a group of people who are looking at the economy and analyzing the economy with respect to the long-run goals of economic policy, that is, this maximum employment and stable prices. The problem with having a non-independent central bank under the thumbs of the politicians is the politicians have a much shorter time frame in mind than is consistent with achieving these goals. So the politicians are looking at the next election, and their impulse, and we're seeing some of it today, is to step on the gas as hard as you can until the next election and then worry about the consequences later. So they've got a very short perspective that they're trying to sort of maximize their own reelection chances. I think the elected representatives were very wise to recognize their own potential shortcomings and create an independent central bank that would have a longer perspective in its policymaking. That said, a primary argument for central bank independence historically was that central banks needed independence to credibly fight inflation. 
So I asked Cohen if independence was really as necessary today when persistently low rather than high inflation seems to be the bigger problem. Here's Cohen again. A lot of the desire for central bank independence grew out of the 1960s and 70s, which were a very inflationary period in which monetary policy wasn't sufficiently focused on price stability and the Federal Reserve was subject to a good bit of political pressure to keep the focus on employment rather than price stability. So economists and politicians recognize that in order to get price stability and to get good performance of the economy over time, there needed to be some arm's length relationship between the technocratic central bank and the political process. Now, you could argue that that came out of an inflation period. That doesn't seem to be the problem now. The problem now is low inflation. I think there are two answers to that. One is even fighting the low inflation, getting the economy back to full employment was subject to political criticisms with Republicans in particular criticizing the unconventional policy. So it was really important during the recovery period that the Fed be independent to pursue unconventional policies in order to get the economy back to full employment. The second point I would make is just because inflation's been quiescent for the last eight to 10 years doesn't mean it will always be quiescent. And I think I would be quite concerned that if Federal Reserve independence were badly compromised, that at some point down the road, we're going to run into an inflation problem, given the shorter time perspectives of the politicians. I also spoke to Sir Paul Tucker, former deputy governor of the Bank of England. He agrees with Cohen that central bank independence is critical to maintaining stable inflation and a functioning banking system. But he argues that advanced economies have become too reliant on central banks to solve all of their problems since the global financial crisis, which leaves them vulnerable to political influence. In your recent book on elected power, you voiced some concerns about central bank independence. Can you give us some color on what those concerns are? Let me put it at two levels, the level of high principle and then a much more practical way of putting it. At the level of high principle, These independent central banks are now incredibly powerful agencies of government. They have quasi-fiscal powers. They combine them with lawmaking powers, which we call regulatory powers, but they're really lawmakers. And yet we've got a rather thin set of principles about how they should fit into a constitutional democracy. And if you contrast that with a kind of rich understanding of how the judiciary fit in at one end of the spectrum, or how the military fit in at the other end of the spectrum. I regard central banks as almost the third pillar of unelected power, and it's much less well-articulated where the constraints are. Let me come down from 100,000 feet to the practical. Our societies, advanced economy, constitutional democracies, have simply relied on central banks far too much since the crisis. And the best measure of this is not so much what they themselves have done. It's the relative absence of the elected fiscal authorities. So not only in the United States, actually across the Western world, what face would people associate with the efforts, whether people like them or not, to get the Western world, the United States, out of the Great Depression and then reform the financial system afterwards? 
President Roosevelt. I've asked that question in presenting the book many times, and I don't need to provide the answer. People say, President Roosevelt. What faces do people associate now with the measures to get us out of the crisis and reform? In the United States, it's Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner, and Hank Paulson. The relative invisibility of both Presidents Obama and Bush too is extraordinary. I'm not making a partisan point. It applied first to Bush and then to Obama. They weren't out there in front explaining what was being done in the way that President Roosevelt did. Instead, we've all looked to my tribe of central bankers to not only execute the actions and make some of the big decisions, but actually be the public face of what was done. And that tells me that something rather extraordinary has changed in our societies over the past 50, 70, 80 years. Have the central banks taken on too much responsibility since the financial crisis? I think their mandates have left them with little choice, and so I don't want to be overly critical of them as institutions, but there is a very nasty dynamic. Imagine there's a horrible crisis, and you're the fiscal policymaker, and I'm the monetary policymaker, and we have a meeting, and we decide that actually the best possible approach will be a mixture of fiscal policy and a mixture of monetary policy. I go back to my building. You have a meeting with your advisors, and your advisors say there's going to be a lot of pain in the party, in Congress, amongst your backers. And you say, well, I see that, but I've got to weigh off the short-term political costs against the longer-term economic benefits. But what happens if I don't do anything? And your advisors say, oh, the central banker will just do more. So you say, oh, okay, then. Let's just not do anything very much for now. Let's have the central bankers do more. That's what's played out in the United States. That's what's played out in Germany. And the cost is monetary policy and regulatory policy it can't improve productivity growth or make the economy more dynamic or cure problems of inequality. These are things that only elected politicians can do. So the central bankers have found themselves a bit trapped. So does this all mean that central banks should be less independent? So I think not. Actually, there's something really valuable about central banks with clear missions that are insulated from day-to-day politics. The mission has to come from Congress or Parliament, but that we should limit their role rather than expect them to reinvent themselves when facing a new set of economic problems. I also asked Cohn why the Fed is so vulnerable to attacks today. Is this all about Trump or are other factors at work, as Tucker seems to believe? Here's his answer. I think it goes back to the global financial crisis and the fact that that crisis had its origins here in the United States and in particular in the housing market. I think that people look to the Federal Reserve to preserve financial stability. Financial stability was not preserved, so they do, at least in part, blame the Federal Reserve for the fact that we had such a severe crisis. A second point here is the crisis response. There is a myth, in my view, that the unconventional policies favored the rich relative to the poor. I don't think that's true, but I think that's out there. And then all these unconventional policies were slow to take hold, to boost the economy back to full employment. Now, it has gotten back there and passed full employment, but it was a long, hard slog through a slowly recovering financial system. 
So I think that whole series of events and the subpar performance of the U.S. economy for so many years undermined confidence in the Federal Reserve. All that said, there's little doubt that the intensity of President Trump's criticism is unprecedented. So how concerned should we be about the threat to the Fed's independence, or at least its credibility? Cohn believes we should be concerned, especially because the criticism is so overt. How concerned should we be about the Fed's independence today, especially considering the president's vocal criticism of monetary policy? So the president's criticism hasn't changed the legal structure, the legal framework supporting Fed independence. You still have budgetary independence. You still have the chair and the members of the board fixed terms. You still have the reserve banks. But I do think legal framework rests on public support. And I am at least somewhat concerned that the constant criticism of not only the policy, but to some extent the character of the people making the policy, the intensity and the amount of criticism could over time undermine public support for Federal Reserve independence. So I think some concern is warranted at this point. Tucker agrees that such open criticism can chip away at public support, but still thinks it's preferable to hidden pressure that's often more difficult to detect and therefore harder to resist. Are you worried at all that the current overt pressure from the White House on the Fed is undermining the Fed's independence? And how unusual is this in you know, your history in central banking? I don't, so far at least, think that it actually is eroding the independence of the Federal Reserve, because I think the people at the top of the Federal Reserve now and before are people that understand that they are independent under the law and they have duties to the law. But, you know, there are two broad ways of attacking central bank independence politicians. And for each of those ways, there's a crude way and a subtle way of doing it. So the first way is around people. And you can either try and get rid of people and appoint people who are at the edges of what will be usual for that kind of job. That's quite clumsy and tends not to work, actually. Much more prevalent, I'm thinking across time and across jurisdictions, is to appoint people that look like regular central bankers or antitrust people or judges, but actually they're quiet allies of a particular president or prime minister. This happened in your country, in the United States, with Arthur Burns and Richard Nixon in the 1970s. Arthur Burns, um, his credentials as an economist could hardly have been better. He was working for Richard Nixon. He was not working, as is well documented in the run-up to the 72 election, he was not pursuing the legal mandate given to him under the law. It's more difficult when it's disguised. The other technique is to change the law, change the mandate or the mission. So one extreme is repeal the independence. Well, you know, that's a clumsy, hard thing to do that would have market costs. Another way of doing it is to give the central bank more and more functions to the point where no decent central bank leader would do other than consult the politician how to pursue their very broad mandate. I could give you examples of all four of those things going on across the world at the moment, a bit in India, a bit in Italy, a bit in continental Europe, a bit in the United States, also in Latin America, in ways, some crude, 
some much more subtle, and I personally worry much more about the subtle ones, much more so than in the 1990s or even in the late 1980s. So the key question is, do we have any reason to believe that political pressure on the Fed and any potential erosion of its independence has actually seeped into policy decisions to date? Cohn doesn't think so and argues that even if Trump ends up nominating a couple more people to the Fed who share his policy views, that in itself won't necessarily change policy. All the people that he's actually put on the board and actually nominated for the board have been very well qualified for their positions, including, in my view, the chair of the board, Jay Powell, but the other nominees as well. I think what's worrisome here is that he kind of woke up at some point to what the Federal Reserve was and how these nominees were behaving once they were on the board and could see that perhaps they weren't as consistent with his views as he wanted them to be. And so the people that he's discussed nominating have been much more in agreement with his particular views on monetary policy than the ones he's actually nominated. I think we shouldn't be surprised that a president would nominate people who were broadly in agreement with his or her views of monetary policy and how the economy can and should perform. That's part of democratic accountability. Just putting one or two people on the board with particular views doesn't change policy. Those people need to convince their colleagues that their way of looking at policy, that their analysis, that their prescription for policy is better than the prescription that was currently being followed. Our chief economist, Jan Hatzius, also doesn't believe the Fed is responding to White House pressure directly, but he thinks that pressure might be influencing policy indirectly. Our view is that a cut is actually not called for, given the macroeconomic environment today, yet they are proceeding to cut. Does that in itself give you pause that independence is really under threat here, or do you just think Fed governors are focusing on different macro indicators that are leading them down this road? It's a very valid question. I think my answer would be more the latter, namely that the committee is focused on perhaps somewhat different issues. However, one of those issues, I think, is bond market pricing and the pressure that is coming, you know, in some sense from the bond market and from the risk that the bond market is going to be disappointed with Fed decisions that, you know, I think that pressure has been pretty clearly in evidence, and they have seemed to be more responsive to that than perhaps in the past. And there is at least an indirect way for the pressure from the bond market to also have a political angle to it in the sense that bond markets definitely respond to what the White House and what President Trump say about monetary policy. So you can't completely separate these two things. I don't think that the Fed's cutting rates because the White House is telling them to cut rates, but the White House clamoring for rate cuts has an impact on the broader environment, which is important for the Fed. So there is a linkage, in my view. What would you need to see happen to make you much more concerned about the Fed losing independence? Well, I think it's a spectrum of things that one could see. You know, if you have one or two appointments of people that are clearly on the president's kind of wavelength as far as monetary policy is concerned, pretty far out of the mainstream 
of the FOMC. I think that's probably not so dramatic. It's a big committee, and there are often outliers on specific issues. I don't think that those outliers would drive the policy. Now, of course, there is sort of a nonlinear effect. You know, you add one more person, maybe it's not that big a deal. You add another few, and eventually it starts being a big deal because you kind of create a critical mass of people that might be more willing to make more political decisions. Of course, the chairmanship is a more important issue. So if we saw a second Trump administration, Chair Powell turns out to be a one-term chairman and is replaced with somebody who is much more susceptible to pressure from the White House, yes, you would be quite a bit more concerned. So I think quite a bit would still need to happen as far as the composition of the Board of Governors is concerned. I don't think we're at a tipping point here, but that would be something to watch. And then in terms of actual decisions, you know, right now, this is a judgment call. Our view is that rate cuts really aren't needed here. We're not particularly concerned about inflation undershooting. We think there is a significant temporary element to that. And we think the economy is doing fine. So our judgment would be that we don't need rate cuts here. However, there is still a plausible case to be made. Inflation has been below target for the better part of a decade. And there is a case for treating the 2% target really as symmetric. So providing some push in that direction, you can make that case. If next year we're at 2.2% or 2.3% core PCE inflation, and we're still talking about cuts rather than deciding at what point one should be taking back those cuts, then I would be more concerned just from the perspective of watching policy. That's not necessarily going to be just related to political pressure, just in terms of the extent of my perhaps disagreement with the current orientation of Fed policy, I would definitely be more concerned in that environment than I am with core PCE inflation at 1.6%. Our economists also think trade policy is now probably being used to influence the Fed, with President Trump repeatedly arguing that easier monetary policy will help put the U.S. on equal footing with China. And with the trade war recently morphing into what looks like the beginning of a currency war, I asked Jan about whether U.S. intervention in foreign exchange markets, which seems to be increasingly under consideration, would pose another threat to Fed independence. Here's what Jan had to say. Well, intervention would be, of course, designed to promote a weaker dollar, and it would be a decision by the U.S. Treasury. The Treasury is responsible for policy. The Treasury obviously ultimately answers to the president, so it's really the executive branch that makes that decision. There is a question of whether the Fed would participate with the Fed's own funds alongside the Treasury. Historically, that's usually been the case. So in that sense, the Fed's funds would then also be applied to promote a weaker dollar through the intervention. However, there's a sort of separate question whether one should take that as a signal that the Fed's then going to basically subordinate broader monetary policy to the currency objectives my view is that would not be the case. I would not expect the Fed to subordinate monetary policy. In fact, one could argue if there is a very successful intervention that leads to a large dollar depreciation, financial conditions ease at the margin, that might be a reason actually for the Fed to resist other monetary easing measures. We'll leave it there for now. But with President Trump continuing to voice his frustrations with the Fed, questions about the independence of central banks, and potential implications for policy, the economy, and markets will remain top of mind. I'm Allison Nathan, and I'll see you next time. 
This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.